February Thaw Written by Christy Peterson Schoonover Sometimes the best thing to do is run away. I'd done it plenty of times. I quit the girls' ice hockey team because my teammates were cruel but ended up loving figure skating. I walked off the job at my parents' truck stop and ended up getting one at the general store with less controlling bosses and a higher paycheck. I abandoned my used, broken-down snow trekker in a blizzard and lucked into a newer model for a song because the dealer's son was sweet on me. As a child in the frigid hell, miles northeast of Yellowknife, I'd always dreamed of living in the palm-treed warmth. So when Seth's father, once I saw him for what he was and what kind of life we'd have to live, decided he'd stop at nothing to have the family he craved, it wasn't difficult to run again to beautiful Miami. My friend Elsa disagrees. On our day off, we sit at the kitchen table in my tiny apartment, dishing on her new boyfriend, whom she hopes this time will be the one, but the conversation again turns to Seth's father. Aren't you ever curious about what would have happened? I mean, you loved him. There's silence as I pour cream into my coffee and stir it with a spoon. I did. The admission seems heavy, like something I'm tired of carrying. I still do. Then I don't see why you can't just work something out. It's not as easy as all that. It isn't. For one thing, Seth's seven now, and he, like his mommy, loves the heat. He spends every available moment in the complex's pool. I'm grateful that the babysitter I hired to watch him for the few hours I'm still at work is a lifeguard. The budget's tight and she costs a little more, but it's worth it. There's also the matter of how we'd have to live if his father found us, but Elsa won't understand that. It's complicated, and even when I suddenly want to explain it, the right words don't come. Not words that don't sound completely insane, anyway. That's not true. I think love is easy. She plates another piece of coconut cake. She's definitely changed since she met Cordaro. She smiles more, for one thing, and her lipstick is peach and not the hot red that used to match her nails, which are chipped. The old Elsa would never have let that go for more than a day. She's less short on temper at work, and she glows in photos. You just gotta roll with it. Seth slams through the front door. It's unusual for him to come in on a Saturday. He won't unless I call him for lunch, and even then it's like wrangling an alligator. He treks into the kitchen, dripping wet, wrapped in a ratty, oversized yellow towel that needs replacing. Mommy, I'm cold. He sets his head on my shoulder. He smells sweet, like milk-logged corn pops. I kiss his forehead, and he does feel cool. Pick your head up for a second, honey. What's the matter? Elsa asks. I don't know. I set the back of my hand against his forehead. He's ice cold.
Something inside me stirs, but I ignore it. I'd say he'd just gotten too much sun, but unlike most kids, he not only voluntarily butters himself in 50 SPF, he throws a fit if we have none, to the point that I spend a good chunk at Walmart making sure we have plenty in stock. Once, he ran out, and the babysitter called me hysterically, telling me he wouldn't stop shrieking and she couldn't pry his fingers off the jam to push him out the door. Elsa pushes her chair back from the table. Oh my God, his lips are blue. Uh, you should go, I say. Are you sure? Yeah, I say half-heartedly. He's totally fine. Just the start of a sunburn, I'm sure. She pats my shoulder. Think about what I said. She grabs her blinged-out hobo purse and ducks beneath a long strap so that it's across her body. Call me later. As I hear the door close behind her, I am thinking about what she said, and it gives me chills. Seth doesn't speak much after that, but as I tuck him in, he asks me, Mommy, am I going to feel better? I don the mask of parental confidence. Of course, baby. Just go to sleep. You'll feel better in the morning. He nods, and in that small face, I see a hint of his father. He closes his eyes and breathes, and I try not to think about Magnus, because it's in these moments I miss him, really miss him. We were well used to vacuous stretches apart, but until I left, nothing was as long as forever. Something frigid seeps through my silk pajama pants. A dark stain spreads across his abominable comforter. It's water. Freezing water. I rip back the comforter, and there, on his left arm, I see it. His skin, his human skin, is melting. It's literally dripping, puddling, soaking the sheets. Beneath the liquefying skin is a horror I'd never imagined. It's clear, like freshly made ice cubes, and I can see the ghosts of his muscles twitching, his veins pulsing, and the blood inside them quickening. A patch of skin near his elbow shrinks away like accelerated film of thawing lake ice. Jesus Christ. I know what this is, and I can no longer pretend. I whip the comforter aside and lift him from bed. His skin sloughs off even as I do it, water rivering down my legs. I rush him into the living room. Putting him in front of the window AC unit on full blast is the best I can do this minute. No, Mommy! It's cold. I know, baby, but you need to sit here for right now. His skin is already pooling on the rug. He screams, I'm scared. Don't be scared. Mommy's got you. I rush to the kitchen for garbage bags. The under-sink cabinet overflows with crushed, splitting boxes of plastic wrap, parchment paper, and sandwich bags. In desperation, I toss them all over the tile floor. The trash bags are the last box, buried at the back. 
More of his skin dribbles down the legs of the chair. God damn the electric bill. I turn the air conditioning down as far as it will go, which I'm sure isn't far enough, but I have to do something. I sit with him and hold his hand as he cries and screams and says he's cold, and I know I can't put blankets on him, and he's naked, and I'm more scared than he is, and I know there's probably no way to stop this, but damned if I'm not going to try. My mother told me, that when a woman becomes pregnant, her womb feels warm and heavy. I knew there was something extraordinary about my baby, other than that he was the spawn of his amazing father, when I didn't feel that at all. Instead, I felt cold, from my womb into my limbs and legs to the tips of my fingers and toes. I had an idea what I was carrying, but I didn't want to admit it. I was so in love with Magnus, so beyond smitten, the second he'd asked me to dance at the Glacier Ball. I grew up in Snowcliff, a speck of a town not far from the Arctic Circle. My parents owned the Whistle and Tea Last Stop, a store, bar, motel, gas station, diner, and whatever else you can imagine, which serviced the needs of the ice road truckers. It was the most important business in town, and so I was comfortable and secure, but all I ever wanted to do was get out. I'd spend post-school afternoons in my room, bathing suit clad, and basking in heat pegged at ninety, and admire the palm tree mural Mom had bought me for Christmas. She thought I was going to put it on my wall. I didn't. I plastered it on my ceiling and every night I looked at it in the pale glow of my flamingo-colored nightlight until I drifted to sleep. The Glacier Ball was a big deal. It was the one reprieve from the survival routine. In a place like that, everyone knows everyone, and Magnus wasn't one of us. He was a drifter who showed up every February shortly after I turned 18, when the only stars in my eyes were ones shining over any place south. I was hell-bent on leaving the second I graduated. Until our eyes met across that room. Somehow, through the crowd, the twinkle light dim, and the cheap silvery decorations that fluttered in the heating vents, I'd found my North Star. We danced, and I felt I could do anything. We kissed and I felt I was the most beautiful creature on the tundra. We made love, and I felt I was set free, that the frozen landscape didn't exist. In the morning, he was gone. There was only a note professing his love, promising his return the following year. So? I stayed. I counted down the weeks, just fifty-one Saturdays, thirty-nine, Twenty-six? This went on for four years. It was long, and sometimes it felt like he'd never existed, but I lived for the Glacier Ball. When I was twenty-two, it happened, and he seemed to know it was going to happen, too, because for the first time when I woke up, he wasn't gone. He was there holding me, and sometimes, to this day, 
I close my eyes and can still feel him. His skin was cold, and he smelled like the air before snow and the oak logs we put on the fire. There, in the bed, he told me what he was. An Utu. Utu is short for Utakak, the Inuit word meaning ice that lasts year after year, he said. The Utu are men made of ice, the cursed souls of those who'd frozen to death trying to find the Northwest Passage. They are material ghosts, doomed to wander and sentenced to living only where it's frigid most of the time, never where it's warm or they'll melt, and can only handle indoor heat for a few hours at a time. Any cautious woman worth her salt would have laughed. But there's a sensibility you develop when you grow up in the frozen north, where the stars are clear, ethereal colors fill your skies, and the world is muffled due to the cold air. All you hear at night are the piercing howls of dogs, terrified of what they sense is beyond the last pool of sodium light on the edge of town. I grew up with stories of all kinds of monsters. I just never thought I'd fall in love with one. Magnus and I tried to make a go of it in a little cabin several miles from town. I did my best with the place. I chose knotty pine furniture, hung curtains, prepared a nursery. But despite his love, it was cold and awful. There was no heat. Magnus had built me an insulated warming closet, which had a kerosene heater, a cozy chair, blankets, and books. But when I wasn't in there, I was bundled up constantly, unable to touch him even, because my hands couldn't be free of the gloves for too long. When I gave birth, I didn't feel the pain I was expecting. I just felt cold and numb and enormous pressure. Seth appeared human. He cried all the time, and I knew it was because he was cold. No baby could survive this. I couldn't survive it. Just after Seth's first birthday... I took him away in the night. I headed south and ended up in Miami, the place of my childhood dreams, and the place I knew Magnus couldn't follow. We've been here ever since, and even though Seth appeared normal, there wasn't a day that passed that I didn't wish things had been different, that I hadn't fallen in love with a man whose seed was as cold and dead as a stone. The air conditioning slows the meltdown, but Seth's left arm, leg, and the left half of his stomach are skin-free, the ice beneath exposed. I can see his organs. I no longer have a choice. I rush about the apartment packing, forcing aside the heartbreak on leaving this beautiful place, on leaving the warmth and palm trees and Elsa and my job and all of my friends cocktails and cigarettes on the patio, the pool, the easy-wear clothing. I force myself not to be sad, not to think of the people I'll miss, the life I'll miss. I force myself not to be terrified that being back up there means that Magnus might find us. Seth's crying as I put him in the Subaru. 
I cram everything I can fit in the back seats, knowing that as we get into the deep cold, back toward where I grew up, I'll have to buy warmer clothes for myself. I drape the back seats in trash bags, blast the A.C., and head straight north. Along the way, we stop at hotels, but the rooms are never cold enough. Eventually, I resort to dunking him in the ice-water-filled tub, spending my nights awake and panicked, running back and forth to the ice machine every 15 minutes because those little plastic buckets don't hold enough. I empty the freezers at every nearby gas station. As we get into the snow country that is Canada, we skip the hotel rooms and sleep outside in the freezing car. I bundle up in everything I own and cringe at that familiar desperation of trying to center in the warmth at the core of my body, of hair under hats, ears under muffs, feet under four pair of socks. This is what my life will be from now on. But the worst, the worst will be the thick gloves, because I know that I'll never really get to feel my son's skin again. Years pass so swiftly, you often think nothing will change. You don't feel time until you go someplace that you haven't been in a while. You expect that when you show up, the diner will still have the same sign, the trees will be no taller, and the roads you drove look exactly the same as the day you took them out of town. When I arrive in Snowcliff, that isn't the case. For one thing, the road is paved, potholed, but paved nonetheless. The group of trailers that stood just past the town's only bar is gone, and in its place is a three-story brick building, windows glowing with life inside. There's even a new sign. Snowcliff, population 203, home of the Glacier Ball. I crawl through the one intersection where I could make a right to go to my parents. I peer down the lane as we pass. Half of me wants to know if my parents are still alive, and half of me doesn't. Half of me wants to see my old house and the mural of the palm trees on the ceiling, and half of me doesn't want to know that maybe the house is no longer theirs, or that they painted over the mural. And if they are still alive, I'll have to explain where I've been. They'll have to meet my son. There'll be so many questions. Questions I can't answer. So I keep driving, past the hall where Magnus and I met every year, that looks like it has a fresh maroon paint job, past my childhood church that looks like it burned in a recent fire, past the sad, vacant lot where the general store, I'm sure, yes, the general store had stood there. We trundle beyond the last sodium light and into the darkness, and a heavy snow begins to fall. I wonder if the cabin where Magnus and I lived, if he isn't there now, is even still standing and what it will look like when I arrive. My heart skips when I see Magnus's snow trekker, but it's obvious the place has been abandoned for a while. It looms in the headlights like a tombstone. The little pink curtains I'd put up flutter in the harsh winds through a broken window. 
Seth's naked. Finally, most of his skin has regrown over the ice that is his innards. He looks at me, his eyes deep and soulful like his father's. Are we home now? I look through the windshield. Yes, we're home, baby. Stay in the car. I'm going to go inside and check it out. I curse myself that I haven't stopped somewhere for supplies, but if the trekker still works, it looks like the squall is turning into a blizzard, the feel of that sharp wind is familiar, I can go into town tomorrow and get what we need. I grab a flashlight from my bag. There's never been a need to lock anything up here, so the door opens easily. Inside, the bar we used to brace against violent weather and keep animals out leans against the wall. The cabin looks as though I only left yesterday, just dirtier and darker. My old tea kettle is on the camp stove's left burner. Dishes are stacked over by the large old galvanized metal bucket I used for washing. New candles I burned daily to light the place are stacked neatly in their wooden box. My old warming closet is still intact. My favorite cozy chair is even still there. The book I was reading still marked where I left off. I heave a sigh. This could work, I guess. He'll be cold enough here that he won't melt away. Over the next couple of weeks, I replace the broken window and the camp stove, buy new dishes and curtains, and get the snow trekker running. Seth seems as comfortable as he was in Miami before its change. He walks around nude, like the unbearable cold is room temperature. Every day I wonder. Every day I wait. Every day Seth plays with Legos like things are normal. Until the one when he cries, Mommy, there's a man coming! I dash to the window, pull back a curtain, and peer out over the ice. On the horizon is a human-shaped blemish against the snow. I'd know the gait of the man I love anywhere. I look at Seth, and then back at Magnus. I do love him. I always did. And maybe I could be with Magnus, complicated as it is. And then Seth... Well, Seth would be where he belongs, wouldn't he? But I know I won't survive this. Magnus is really the only one who can take care of him. I crouch next to him. Seth, honey, listen, Mommy has to go. He blinks at me with his father's stunning indigo-violet eyes. Your, your daddy will be here any minute. Any other child who'd never met his father might be confused right now, but he just looks at me with profound wisdom. Am I going to see you again? Any other mother would never in a million years consider doing what I'm about to do. I set a gloved hand on his dove white hair and lie. Yes, you will. He returns to his Legos. I notice for the first time that he's building a miniature swimming pool. 
You can feel when your heart actually breaks. The cracks splitting it apart. It's splintering into pieces. It's a deep pain. One that starts as a stab in the chest, then lightnings through your stomach, your womb, and then finally to your limbs. I feel my legs are so weak I can't move. But I know I have to go, because if I have to face Magnus again, if I have to look into his heavenly eyes, I will stay here. I will stay here and be miserable, and I will fail as a mother as the resentment grows inside me. That resentment in knowing I can't be who I need to be, even as I'm trying to do anything and everything for my son. I've given it my best shot. I kiss Seth on the head, feel how cold it is against my lips. Then I go to the door, lift the bar, and plunge into the frozen landscape. I mount a snow trekker. I think of Elsa and what she'll say. I think of warmth, of palm trees, the pool, and easy wear clothing. I force myself not to be sad, not to think of the sun I'll miss and the life that I won't. I consider one last time before turning the key in my super-gloved hand. And I still understand that sometimes the best thing to do is run away.